Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Now, I'm not going to lie, I did my best this week to try to find a leisure suit to wear for um, this, this weekend coming out of that, that music, but I could not find one, so if you have one, would love um, to put Kevin in it next week, because he'll be here and I'll be at LSU, but I'm really excited about this series. Uh, who haven't met yet, my name is Andrew, I'm with Stafford the Chapel. If you were here last week, um, I sounded much better than I did last week, um, but also still a little bit froggy, so if y'all would bear with me. Thankfully, last week we bribed you with some ice cream uh, to make you feel a little bit better about it. This week, we don't have ice cream to share, but we are diving in into what we want for you. Now, last week, we kind of gave the, the big picture of where we believe God is taking us over the next 10 years. We got detailed into some of the parts of the vision about the steps we're taking to get there. But we said the most important part was the frame of that picture. Our mission, what we do here, we help people meet, know, follow Jesus. How we do it, we gather, we grow, we serve, we go. While we do it, or that's our motivation, our values. But then we said at the top of that picture, was really the ultimate goal, and that is the individual marks or individual measures of a follower of Jesus. Meaning, we could do everything right here. We could send all the people around the world. We could raise all kind of money. We could do all kind of growth. But if we aren't growing as individual followers of Jesus, then nothing else matters. And that's exactly what this whole entire series is, is what we want for you. We want you to become a fully devoted, mature follower of Jesus. And to kind of introduce that idea today, I want to bring up two terms that you might be familiar with, um, failure to thrive and failure to launch. Now, failure to thrive has to do with infants. And because I've been discriminating a lot and having nothing but pictures of little girls, as in my little girl, that I said I have a little boy picture today, the failure to thrive is a medical issue when it comes to um, an infant or a small child where they're not able to grow and develop as they're supposed to. And normally after some testing, going to doctors and stuff, it's able to be addressed and they're able to actually grow and thrive in the way that God wants them to. Um, so failure to thrive is usually medical and usually able to adjust. Now failure to launch is a totally different thing. One, it's a great movie with Matthew McConaughey and Terry Bradshaw, even though I saw more of Terry Bradshaw in the movie than I really wanted to, if you know what I'm talking about. But failure to launch is whenever someone decides, I'm not going to grow up. I'm not going to be an adult. I'm not going to move out of the house. I'm not going to take care of myself. I'm going to rely on someone else's dime. They're going to pay for my stuff. They're going to get my food. They are going to take care of me. I'm going to prop up my feet, play my video games, eat Mama's Doritos, and think life is okay because someone out there is taking care of me. Now, some of you might have someone like this in your house. And if you are, I'm sorry, but also it could be partially our fault as parents. This can happen because maybe parents are too soft, they're too doting, they take care of their kids too much and don't allow them to take ownership and grow up. Or maybe it's because the kids just decide, you know what, someone's taking care of me. I'm not going to actually put out the effort. Regardless of the reason, failure to launch can be a problem within the home. But the big issue is failure to launch isn't just within the home. It's also a problem for many, many of us as Christians. We have failed to launch. We're allowing our faith to be based off of someone else's faith. We're allowing our faith to be fed by someone else's dime. We're living a feed me, care for me, take care of me. And we are not personally, individually growing as followers 
of Jesus. We're saying, you know what? It's all about me. I'm going to kick back and let someone else do it for me. And not just is that toxic for the church, that is actually the antithesis of the gospel. The gospel calls us to grow. It calls us to mature. It calls us to begin to be productive as followers of Jesus. And for too long, especially in the 21st century, we have failed to launch as followers of Jesus. But it's not just a 21st century problem. We see this all the way at the very beginning of the church. And we see Paul address this in 1 Corinthians 13 with one of the first churches in our day and time. And he's writing this to the church saying, guys, it's, it's time to grow up. He says, brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You're still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? What he's saying is basically this. And guys, you, you came to saving knowledge of Christ. You're converted. You decided to follow Jesus, but nothing in your life has changed. You're still immature. You're still acting like a baby. You're still arguing. You're not growing in grace. You're not growing as a mature follower of Jesus. And this is an issue. Sadly, this is still an issue 2,000 years later. But thankfully, Paul gives us a picture of what maturity actually looks like, not just as individuals, but also as the church. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, so Christ, Jesus himself, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. He said, I gave, I gave these gifts to these people as a gift to you to equip his people for the works of of service. It's our job as pastors, as elders, as teachers, as staff to equip you. And this word equip is actually a fishing term to mend the nets, to prepare the nets, to go and do the work of a fisherman, or, or in the metaphor of Christ, to go fish for men. We're here to equip you for the works of service for this purpose, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and look at this, and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He's saying the whole point of the church, the whole point of us following Jesus is to attain the full, whole measure of Jesus, which is simply this, to become more and more and more like him. A big church word is sanctification, to reach maturity and perfection in following Jesus. That is why we are here. And Paul is saying, Corinth, you're not getting it. But this is the purpose. And this is what happens in verse 14. It says, Then, once we reach that maturity, we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of the people in their deceitful scheming. He said, If we grow as mature followers of Jesus, everything that hits us in this world isn't going to throw us for a loop. Every false teaching that pops up, every new idea, every shift in culture, it's not going to throw us for a loop because we're going to be so deeply rooted and mature in Christ, we will be able to stand firm. But this only happens if we're ready to be launched, if we're ready to step in and grow as followers of Jesus. So what does that look like? What's it like here at the chapel? Well, that's what the series is all about. And we have three groovy statements to kind of describe what this looks like here at the chapel. It is a self-feeder who is relationally accountable. We talked about this last week, and it was an absolute blast. Literally, we had explosives, and if you missed it, you shouldn't have been, should have been here last Sunday. But we talked about what does it mean to read the Word, 
to understand the word and to live out the word, to read the Bible for yourself, understand it and live it out, but also to do it within accountability, to do it within gospel community. So we talked about what that looks like. Today we're gonna talk about being a grateful worshiper who is radically generous, and the next week a disciple maker who is globally minded. So these are just words that we have coined or phrases we've put together to say this is what a mature follower of Jesus looks like here at the chapel. And it's our job as staff, as pastors, as elders to say, hey, this is what it looks like and this is how we can help get you there. So today we're going to talk about grateful worshiper and being radically generous. And for the record, each one of those little statements could be a whole sermon series in and of itself. So today is going to be a lot. We actually finished the first service about the time this service began. So I'm going to try to shorten it up a little bit. So y'all just need to listen really, really fast. And we're going to keep moving through this. Um, but I hope you'll truly encounter um, who God is today and we'll dive in. So grateful worshiper. To, to dive into this, we're going to answer four questions. What do we mean by this? Why is it important? What gets in the way? And then how do we overcome it? So what does it mean? Why is it important? What gets in the way? And how do we overcome it? So grateful worshiper, what do we mean? A grateful worshiper is someone who has a grateful response to who God is and what he's done. A grateful worshiper is someone who responds with a grateful response to who God is and what he's done. It is an unfiltered, unadulterated, man, bare bones response to who God is. Just simply responding, not, of what he's, not just what he's done for me, what he's done in the world, but simply, God, this is who you are, and I'm responding with gratitude to you. And we see this over and over in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, gives us a beautiful picture of just what this looks like for a couple, a couple different reasons. And one is just a response to God's glory. Look at Psalm chapter 19, verses one and two. This is just unfiltered response to who God is. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Just looking up at the heavens saying, holy cow, God is magnificent. But also they praise God because God is good. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 16. It says, give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell all of his wonderful acts, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. So praising God because God is absolutely big and glorious, but also praising God because he's good, because he does amazing things. But then we see in Job chapter 1 that the people who truly understood who God was, the Jewish people of the Old Testament, they praised God even when times were bad. And before we dive in and read this passage, I want to let you know what's happening. If you know the story of Job, you know his life was pretty dang tough. And at this point in time, his kids had just lost their lives. The, the enemy had come in and killed all of his goats, all of his sheep. They even killed the dude's camels. Like he was not having a good day. Like I don't have camels, but if I did, I would not be happy if someone killed my camels. My kids, don't mess with them. But my camels, don't touch a man's camels, right? But look at his response. Look what he says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Even when he loses everything, someone who truly responds to the Lord says, you know what, no matter what is taken from me, no matter what happens, may I praise God's name. Guys, that's 
what it means to praise God. We praise God. Why? Why is it important? Because God is worthy of praise. We praise God. Why is it important? Because God is worthy of praise. I want to be clear, guys. God is worthy of praise whether he brings about salvation in our life or not. Even if God had never sent Jesus to come, to live, to die, and to raise from the dead, God would still be worthy of our praise. And I know that may be shocking to some of you, but guys, that's how big and incredible and glorious our God is. God is worthy of our praise, whether he saved us or not. Based off of who he is, his character, his holiness, his justice, his love, his mercy, his omnipotence, which is being all-powerful, his omnipresence, him being everywhere, his omniscience, his all-knowing. God in and of himself is worthy of our praise. Whether or not he lifted a finger to save us, we would be called to praise him. So why is this important? Because God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our praise. And this is the words that brought Jesus to say this in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And we're going to get to salvation in just a minute, guys. But we have to understand if we're truly and properly going to worship God, we have to take the lens off of what God has done for us first and to see him for who he truly is. He is worthy of our praise. But then we also praise him gratefully because of what he's done for us. He's our creator. He's our shepherd. He's our redeemer. And our response of gratitude comes from a place recognizing what God has done for us. And I think at times in the modern church, we can kind of rush over being grateful for salvation, being grateful for what God has done for us. But I want us just to sit, sit here for just a second. We're really good at making light of our sin because it makes us feel bad and we're sinners saved by grace and hallelujah, praise the Lord. And we forget how absolutely horrific our sin was. And we're not going to truly be grateful until we remember, guys, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And that means hopeless. There was no way forward. There was no, I'm flashing and splashing in the water, hoping someone saves me. You were face down in the water with no hope. But God loved us enough to enter into the mess that we made of ourselves, to enter into the mess that we made because we rebelled against him, and he deemed us worthy to be saved. That's why we respond Gratefully, And until we can see the horrific nature of our sin, we're not going to see the beauty of grace and the beauty of our Savior Jesus. We need to see how desperate we were, how good God is, and in turn, how grateful we should be. We respond to God through gratefulness because of who he is, his character, but also what he's done, his salvation for our souls. But another reason we respond gratefully is by responding gratefully, responding in worship. That's how we actually grow our faith. Once you look at Romans chapter 4, verse 20, and if you're a part of the Chapel Bible reading plan, you read this on Thursday. This is talking about a guy named Abraham who had incredible faith. Now, Abraham was a guy in the Old Testament. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God came and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you and your wife into a great nation. And Abraham's like, that's great, but number one, we don't have kids, and I'm really old, and my wife, politically correct, she's well upon in age. Like, we don't have kids, much less, how are you going to make us into a nation? But Abraham believed, and God did what he said he would do. But I want you to see the nature of his faith and what brought it about. It says, no unbelief made him, made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. How? As he gave glory to God. 
If we want our faith to grow, we want to grow as mature followers of Jesus, we need to respond to God in worship. Gratefully praising him for who he is, but also gratefully praising him for what he's done. Creator, sustainer, but also shepherd and redeemer, personally getting into our life. That's why we respond to God. But let's be honest, it's not always easy, is it? Like we innately know we're made to worship someone or something in our life. We attach ourselves to something, but doing it to God is, is not really that easy. So what, what gets in the way? What gets in the way is self and idols. Can I tell you all a secret? I am my biggest obstacle for growth spiritually in my life. Not you, but not the people on Blue Bonnet that cut me off, but not the people who cheer for the Roll Tide, not any of those people. They're not the problem in my life. I am the biggest obstacle for spiritual growth in my life because I put myself before all things. And also we allow idols to slip in the way. And we'll parse out what, what that means. But I want to take us back to a, a quote I used a few weeks ago by a guy named A.W. Tozer, who's phenomenally wise as far as coming to know and understand who God is, but he frames something in a perspective. He says, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's the most important thing about us because worshiping the one who's worthy of worship, whether we get that right or get that wrong, that's incredibly important. But the issue is, and I've adjusted A.W.'s statement to this, what comes to mind when we think about God is us. What can he do for me? How can he serve me? How can my desires, my needs, my wants, my dreams, my aspirations, how can they be fit into his goal instead of vice versa? Now, is there anything wrong with having dreams and desires and wants and needs? Absolutely not. But looking at God through the lens of them instead of looking at them through the lens of God, that's where we mess up. And that's where things move from being important in our life to becoming idols. And of the way Tim Keller describes an idol, and he describes it this way, he says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. See, this is what an idol is. Anything you seek meaning, you seek satisfaction from that only God can give, if you're seeking it for something else, that is an idol. I have a, a bigger excerpt I want to read from his book entitled Counterfeit Gods. And if you'd like to read, I highly recommend Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. I'll put it in my Monday email tomorrow that you can read. But I want to read a, a section from his book. Uh, one, because it stepped on my toes, and I hope it steps on yours too. This is a counterfeit God. Is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. How dare you, Tim Keller, step into my life. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but in all reality, it's idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel that my life has meaning, and then I'll know that I have value. 
then I'll feel significant and secure. And there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. None of us would readily admit we worship things in life outside of God, but whenever we begin to realize we get meaning, we have desires, we have more focus on those things than we do from God, that's when, that's when it begins to get real. I actually brought a bag today full of idols, and there are no golden calves or anything in here, but these are represent some things, I believe, in our life that we don't realize have become idols. And the first one should not surprise you, might offend some of you, if so, good, it is this. Mike the Tiger. Now, is this itself an idol? No, Mike's super cute. Mike's, Mike's awesome. But it represents something in our city, in our culture, and in the south region of the United States. It's unbelievable, guys. I don't even know if you realize this. Not just do Saturdays change in the fall. The whole season of this part of the year, this part of the country, this part of the region changes because of a little bitty ball made of leather. Everything changes. I can't do that because of the game. We've got to schedule around this. We've got to change this. Traffic's got to change this way. Everything changes because of a little game, because the numbers on a scoreboard. Even the mood of the whole city changes based off of numbers on a scoreboard. Now, don't get me wrong. I love sports. I love football. I was a collegiate athlete. I'm all about it. But whenever it changes everything about your life, it has become an idol. Another thing I have in here, and I had to borrow this because I don't have any of these, it's a $100 bill. The reason I have it there is because we don't want to admit this, because money has become an idol in our life. It's not just going to have enough more cash, but it's more of a, when I get to this amount, then I will be secure. When I can have this, I will finally be able to live the life I want to live. If I can reach this number, then I can be generous. Then I can do these things. Then I can do ministry. It has become an idol because we seek safety and security in it that only God can offer, meaning that only God can can offer. For some of us, this is an idol right here. Not a watch itself, but time. We've become so selfish and so aware of how precious that resource is that we make sure it serves us instead of allowing it to serve others. Now, this one I didn't have to borrow because I had this in my closet. It's this. Now, that represents the God or the idol of fashion. And guys, you're not off the hook. Some of you spend more on clothes than most of our ladies do. But what do we do? We want to make sure we're perceived in a certain way, that we're perceived to have a certain status, and we have become so consumed with it, the way we look, the way we're perceived, the way we show ourselves in public, that we can't help but allow it to really take over our life. This one, it's really small, but it's really powerful. It's a golf ball. Ladies, no elbowing your husband because this is representing hobbies as a whole, not just, not just golf. But the reason why hobbies can do that is you go to bed thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. You can't wait for the weekend because that's what you want to go do. And I brought a golf ball because I didn't want to bring my idol of my bow up here on stage. But what happens? It consumes your thoughts. You get enjoyment out of it. That's not a problem. But when the joy comes from it more than it comes from the Lord, that is an issue. Just to keep talking about self, here's a mirror. So I keep my back pocket to check out my hair every day. Like, it's a, it's a mirror to look at ourselves to make sure we're, we know what we're all about. But this last one, it really got me. I hope it gets you too. This is, this is Foxy. This is Abigail's 
little buddy. I actually had to hide it getting it out of the house today because she was unhappy that I would have taken it with me. But what I've realized with Foxy, what I've realized with Abigail is yes, I'm called to parent her. Yes, I'm called to love her. But guys, at times I've allowed that beautiful child to become an idol. And one, that's not fair to her. But two, that's not fair to the Lord. The Lord has given her to me as a gift. But I've allowed my love for her, my obsession with her, my dreams, my desires, my aspirations for her to move itself above the Lord. Not just the Lord in her life, but the Lord in my life. So what gets in the way of us worshiping our God? Lots of things. But anything that begins to consume our thoughts, our heart, and gives us more meaning than our relationship with the Lord. So the question is, how do we overcome it? How do we overcome those issues? We overcome it this way, with holistic devotion. Holistic devotion. Not partial, not a little bit, but going all in. I want you to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Strong word on purpose. A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He said the way we overcome all of this is we go all in. And also look at this first little word there, that word, therefore. Paul is referring back to the first 11 verses, or the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, which by the end of this week, you'll have read all Romans 1 through 11 in these first two weeks, the Chapel Bible reading plan. But guys, in Romans 1 through 11, it probably has the clearest and richest rendition of the gospel, of the power of the Holy Spirit, and also the damaging nature of sin. And Paul is saying, after all of that doctrine, after all of that good theology, after all of that rich, deep stuff, this is what I want you to understand. Give yourself fully to God. Everything in life is going to be vying for your attention, vying for your emotions, vying for your heart. Give yourself fully to God. Not part, not withholding, not keeping little things back for yourself. Go all out on the table. Give it to God. Because if you don't, these will drag you down. And God doesn't want part God doesn't want a majority. He demands all of it, and he is worthy of all of it. So how do we do this? Holistic, everything on the table, devotion. I want to give you some practical steps for for what what this looks like. These are very simple, very practical. You're going to probably think, man, this is almost too simple. I just want you to get started in the right direction. You continue to grow. And the first one is this. Start your day with worship. Start your day with worship. And I kind of hinted at this back in our psalm series. But guys, wake up in the morning a little bit earlier than you normally would before the kids get up, before the coffee machine goes off, before you do whatever, and spend time with the Lord. Start your day with worship. That could be diving into the Chapel Bible reading plan. If you, if you join the text group, 6 a.m. Monday morning, you'll get a text, and you'll be ready to rock and roll. Get in the Word. Study it. Meditate on it. Spend time and fasting over it. If you're a lady at the chapel, you can come and see what that looks like at our chapel women's Bible studies at 845 on Thursday mornings at LSU location. Diving into what does it look like to really get in the Word and practice these disciplines for the Lord. Get in the Word. And then write down what you're thankful for. Practice gratuity. Practice being grateful. For some of you, it might be, my husband didn't snore that bad tonight. Amen. Write it down. Like, whatever it takes, start what you are thankful for. 
Spend time with the Lord. Spend time being thankful. The second one is just like it. End your day with worship. Book end your day. Start it with worship. End it with worship. And you might not feel like reading a lot. Whenever you're going to bed at night, it might put you to sleep. Parts of the Bible, I'm going to be honest, can put you to sleep. I'm a pastor. I can say that. Like, it will absolutely bore you to death. End with journaling. Lord, today I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for my job. Thankful for my church. Thankful for my community group. Thankful for my wife. Thankful for my husband. Thankful for my kids. Journal something that you are thankful for because being grateful will lead you to worship. And then lastly, gather for worship. Gather for worship. Come together corporately on Sundays ready to worship together. When I say gather for worship, I'm not saying gather just to be here. Because some people gather to be here and there ain't no worship in their bones. They are stone statues, not moving. Like either you work for the FBI, the Secret Service, or something's wrong here. Like you're not moving. If we are truly changed by the beauty and the glory of Christ, you shouldn't be able to help but worship. Let your face know it. Let your mouth know it. Let your heart know it that you love the Lord. And when it comes to gathering for worship, plus one. Whatever you're doing, plus one, you come once a month, which is about the average attendance for church across America, come twice a month. Come twice a month, come three times a month. You come every single week, join a community group. You come every single week and a community group, join the worship team, plus one, whatever you are doing, because we will not grow unless we're gratefully worshiping our Heavenly Father. One, He is worthy of it. Two, He calls us to do it. And three, that is how our faith begins to develop. All right? We're only halfway through, and we got a long way to go. So that is gathering for worship, grateful worshiper. The next one is this, radical generosity. Radical generosity. A true follower of Jesus is radically generous. So what do we mean by that? Someone who's radically generous gives first to God and then to others. Openly, freely, and joyfully, saying everything I am, everything I have is first God's and then everyone else's. This includes finances, but it's not limited to that. It's resources, it's influence, it's skills, it's talents. It's everything I have, everything I am is first of all God's and then everyone else's. A beautiful picture of where we see this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And again, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, this is his, actually his third letter written to them saying, hey, this is kind of a correction here. You're doing better, but this is some things you can do. And the Corinthian church is a very, very wealthy church. The Corinthian church had lots and lots of money. And they said, you know what, Paul, we're going to help the ministry in Jerusalem. We got a lot of money. We're going to give it, but they never followed through. So Paul says, I'm going to give you a story of someone who is generous to help you see what it looks like to give. And the people he's going to share about we're not very rich at all. They're the Macedonian church of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. They were actually extremely poor and were under unbelievable persecution. Look at verse 1. It says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, I don't know if you're very good at math, but severe trial plus extreme poverty, in my mind, does not equal overflowing joy and rich generosity. Like, if anything, it equals to, Lord, help me. Like, I need some help here. But what happened? They realized their joy was not centered on their circumstance. Their joy was not centered on their bank account. Their joy was centered on the presence of God in their midst. And it welled up in rich generosity which means rich generosity is not based on the number of zeros on a check. Rich generosity is generosity applied. Generosity lived out. 
And it gets even better in verses 3 and 4. He says, first, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. When I read that, I'm like, Paul, you're a smart guy. That does not make sense. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Like here in America, we spend as much as we're able and then we spend beyond our ability. But how in the world do you give beyond that? They were taking their basic needs, those basic little things that they would have to take care of themselves and giving it to other people because they trusted in the mission of God. They said, God will take care of us, but people need this, so we are going to give. They did this entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. I imagine Paul was like, guys, you don't need to be giving. You need to be getting. You are the poor people here. You are the ones who need help, but because of their deep love for God, they said, you know what? We want to be the ones to give, not the ones to get. In verse 5, and they exceeded our expectations. Well, no, duh, Paul. They, of course, exceeded your expectations because they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us also. They had the right perspective. Everything they had was of God, and if God had a little bit extra, then they would give it to other people. Now, what, what motivated the Macedonians to live this way? What motivates them to do this? Why is it important for us to live generously? It's because of this, guys. Jesus gave his life for us. It's important for us because Jesus gave his life for us. Do we give in response to our salvation? Yes, we're going to get to that in just a minute. But the reason why we live generously is because our model, the one who shows us how to live life, he gave everything. Look, look at verse 9. It's in Corinthians 8. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Christ stepped down out of heaven into the mess that we created by rebelling against him so that we might have a chance to come and know him. That is what generosity is. And he didn't give part, he gave all. He gave everything he had so that we might have a chance to be reconciled to the Father. That is what generosity looks like, and that is why we, as followers of Jesus, people imitate Jesus, are called to be generous. That's why it's one of our values here at the chapel, and this is the motivation for what we do, but this last one is radical generosity, and we do this because we serve a generous God, and our goal is to be more like him. We don't give because we feel like we have to because he saved us. We give because he first gave, and we want to be more like him. Does this include finances? Absolutely. We'll talk about that in a minute because this goes way above and beyond finance. This is a lifestyle of giving, not just a moment in time. And one way we see this here at the chapel is through a foster support group that we started just a few weeks ago. We have uh, some people in our church who are very passionate about this, which is incredible because God calls us to do this. But we're taking care of foster children, but also foster families. We're taking care of them as they take care of these children. And this is a time of generosity where, yes, they bought all kinds of supplies, but then they gave time to come up, to pack these bags, to take care of these families, to take care of these kids. Was it because they felt guilty? No. It's because they wanted to model their life after Jesus who gave everything. Because this is what radical generosity looks like. Is it writing a big check for some of us? Yes. Is it giving of time for most of us? Yes. Is it giving of self for all of us? Yes. We give because Christ first gave. But for being honest, generosity is not necessarily 
natural, is it? We like to keep, we like to hold, we like to hoard. So what gets in the way? What keeps us from being generous? Greed and lifestyle. Greed and lifestyle. We're going to talk about both the G word and the D word here in church today. So we're going to talk about greed. But before we get into greed and lifestyle in today's time, I want to let you in on the secret of something many of you know. There is a part of greed that when lived in the past can affect us for generations to come. Because if we live outside of our means when it comes to greed, this thing called debt begins to slip into our life. And past mistakes will haunt us moving forward, but also it will limit us and keep us from being able to be generous. Now, Scripture talks about debt a lot, about how it's not good, it's slave to the lender, all that kind of stuff. Now, I'm talking about mortgage debt. I'm talking about consumer debt here. Um, but the reality is, guys, if we are in debt, there's no way we can be generous. We have no margin. And the American people, the Western culture, we are really, really good at debt. I did a lot of debt research this past week, and it was depressing to see how much debt we have in our nation. I'm not even going to talk about student loans. That's so politicized right now, but it's a lot of money that's there. The average person with a car loan, whether it's auto loan or auto lease, $21,000 in debt when it comes to a vehicle. $21,000. I don't know if I've ever owned a vehicle that was worth that much. If so, that'd be awesome, right? But $21,000. Credit card debt, $5,200. The average interest rate, 24.99%. You do the math. It's a lot. Personal loans, upward of $17,000. Guys, if we're in that kind of debt, there's no way that we'll be able to live generously. But debt isn't the culprit there. Greed is the culprit. Because whether we're in debt or not, greed can greatly impact our ability to be generous. And whenever I talk about greed, I'm saying, the, I call it the consumption assumption. We assume if it comes to us, it's ours to consume. It's lavish vacations. It's bigger, better, nicer cars, larger homes. It's making sure all of our people are taken care of. Our kids are going this way. All this extra stuff that's spent. Again, none of that is bad, but when it comes to the point if it's all about us and not about God, that's where the issue lies. The issue of comparison, the issue of greed, and the issue of self. And it's problematic in two ways. One, it takes the focus off of God and puts it on us. But two, it takes all those resources that God gave us and it causes us to hoard them and to keep it all for us instead of furthering his kingdom. So how do we overcome it? We overcome it this way. We change our perspective and we change our habits. We move from the assumption of consumption that it's ours to consume and we see ourselves as stewards. That everything God has given us is yes, for our good, but really for the good of those around us. We are conduits of God's blessing to other people. Some of you are incredible examples of that. Some of your conduit wouldn't even fit in this room. Like you're that big and it just flows through you and God is amazing when doing that. But you've taken the mindset of everything that comes to me isn't for me. It's for me to use for God's glory. And that's how we change our perspective. We quit asking the question of, how does this serve me? How can I make my life better with this? What can I do with this influence, with this money, with this resource, with this thing that God has given me? Instead of looking at me, what does God want me to do with it for him and for his people? And then in turn, we'll begin to change our habits. 
Instead of living life with live for me first, save a little bit on the backside, and maybe give if I have some coins left over, we shift into we're going to give first. First to God, then to others. Then we're going to save. We're going to be wise with our money. And then we're going to live on what God has for us. Because God wants us to enjoy life. Don't get me wrong. But he wants us to do it with the right perspective. And guys, and when we live this way, an incredible, incredible blessing comes with it. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This uh, agricultural term, you plant, it grows. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He will bless you abundantly. Jesus would say in Luke 6, 38, he will press it down and it will begin to overflow in your life. You cannot outgive God. If you give generously, he will bless you. But I want to be very, very clear. This isn't a, you give God a dollar, you get $10 back. You live in America, welcome to your $10. That's not at all what he's saying here. He's saying this, you will be blessed in the same way the Macedonian church was blessed, overflowing joy from the only place where you can get it, God the Father. So guys, I wanna ask you, is this the type of disciple you wanna be? One who just worships fully and gratefully, one who gives fully and generously and is overflowing with the joy of the Lord or someone who is half in, half out? Still drinking on the milk, still kinda going in, still kinda stepping out and just kinda living halfway in the world and halfway with Christ. If you're ready to go all in, here are some, some steps you can take. The first one is this. Get out and stay out of debt. If you're in debt right now, we have some people in our care ministry team and also some coaches in our church. We would love to help you with this. We're not going to pay all the bills for it. Let you get out. We're going to coach you on what this looks like because getting out of debt isn't about making more money. It's about curbing consumerism. It's about curbing how much you want and you desire. It's living within your means. The second one is this. If you don't give, start. If you don't give, start. And I'm not talking about just financially. I am talking about financially, but even beyond that, if you're not serving, serve. And if it's not convenient for you, welcome to living a life of sacrifice. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be convenient. And if you give randomly, give consistently. If you give every now and then, oh, give first to the Lord, the first fruits, and then move forward. If you give some, give some more. If you give some, give some more. And I want to be very clear here, and I could tell stories from our church body over and over. I could tell stories from my life and Emily's life over and over and over. Guys, right now, giving more is tough. Like, there's more going out and less coming in for our family than probably ever before. I know it's a little bit scary. There are times where Emily and I look at our bank and we reconcile our bank statements and we're like, we're in the red this month. This is not Good. We need to curb some of our expenditures. One thing we've determined we're never going to, we're not going to back down on our giving. And because we've never done that in eight years of marriage, guys, God has always been faithful. Does that mean $10,000 checks in the, in the mailbox? No. It just means he always came through. We've never been in need. We never have not had what we needed. Trust the Lord. He will always, always, always come through. And lastly is this, and this is for everyone. Take an inventory. Am I living radically generously? 
Am I being radically generous? I'm not asking you, am I being generous? There's some of you in this church that are unbelievably generous with your finances, with your time, with your home, with your resources, with your influence. It's unbelievable. Am I being like the Macedonian church? Am I giving what I'm able and even beyond my ability? Am I giving beyond my ability? Now, Kevin and I wanted to take a moment today since we're talking about finances just to give you a brief glimpse into where we are um, financially as a church. And for the record, we're not taking up any extra offerings today. You can rest easy, just normal giving, all that stuff. But we do want to let you know because this is a huge part, not just of the function of the church, but also the function of a disciple. Every year we set our budget the year before, usually October, November, the elders will come together with staff and we'll set it, we'll pray over it. And it's usually a faith budget, believing, okay, this is what we believe God will bring in through our body. So we set our expenditures on that and then we move forward. Now, at this point in time in the year, we're 6% behind on our budget, which means we're about $195,000 behind where we thought we would be. Now, before you freak out, we're not $195,000 in debt. We're very frugal. We're responsible. We're not going to spend money that has not come in. But that means some of the ministry that was planned based on this budget will not be able to happen because that money has not come in. And I share that with you, not because I'm worried about ministry suffering here at the chapel. I believe God is way, way more sovereign than that. He's in control. He will do what he wants to do. But I'm saying that because whenever we look at our finances, we realize that not everyone who calls the chapel home is financially invested here at the chapel. We don't want everyone to give tons of money. That would be awesome. That's not the point. We want 100% of the chapel engaged financially with the chapel, giving to the Lord, trusting that he will do this. Is it because we need the money? No. It's because we want something for you. Look at verse 7 back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a part of becoming a follower of Jesus. But since you excel in everything, which I think the chapel does, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. We want you to become a full, mature follower of Jesus, and that involves Giving because giving is not a financial issue. Ultimately, it is a trust issue. So how would I recommend you move forward? I said, if you don't give anything, give something. If you give some, give more. So how do you come up with that number? Well, Paul gives us a great idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Does that mean kind of being a scapegoat? Absolutely. You decide in your heart what you want to give, but do it from a place of cheerfulness. Do it from a place of, I get to. I get to trust the Lord. I get to partner with the Lord. I get to give him my finite resources and watch him multiply. And guys, I promise you, he will. And that overflowing joy that he will bring in your life, I can't even begin to describe it. Just trust him. And when you do, your faith will grow in ways that you cannot even imagine. I'm going to ask you to bow your head this morning. And as you do, I just want to give us time to kind of let our hair down a little bit, breathe a little bit, because that was a lot to cover in the amount of time that we did. And I want you to think, where do you find yourself on the scale of a grateful worshiper and being radically generous. And you've realized this, these two are not mutually exclusive. They, they go together. You cannot be radically generous unless you're fully engaged in worship. And if you're fully engaged worshiping the Lord, you can't help but be radically generous with your life. I want to ask you,
Where are you? Are you living a grateful worship life? Or do you just show up one time a week and maybe once during the week you open the word and you'll encounter God? Is it a daily lifestyle of you worshiping and thanking God for who he is and what he's done? Because like Abraham, that's how your faith will grow. But two, it's how you'll come to know our Lord and King by worshiping him because he is worthy. And when it comes to generosity, when it comes to being radically generous, I want to ask you, where are you? Guys, we're not looking for equal gifts. There's some people in this room that could give circles around all of us, but there are people in this room like the Macedonians who give circles around us, not in amount, but in heart and in motivation. I want to ask you, are you radically generous? Have you been transformed in such a way through the love and person of Jesus that you want to participate in what he's doing? Guys, I want you to hear me. It's not that I want something from you. God's work done God's way would not like for God's supply. I'm not worried about that. I want this for you. I don't want you to miss what Christ has for you in the trust of living a radically generous life. And for some of you, the first step will be not giving financially or giving of self to the Lord. It will be giving your soul to him, of surrendering your life, saying, Lord Jesus, I don't know you, but I want to. I believe you're the Son of God who came, who lived, who died, and rose from the dead. And I believe that I can be made right with the Father because of you. That is our first gift, and everything flows from there. So, Lord Jesus, I pray today that your gospel would be present, Lord, that it would be clear, and that we would see the only response there is is one of grateful worship. The only response there is is us offering our whole self as a living sacrifice. And, Lord Jesus, that does include our checkbook. It includes our calendar. But, God, it involves so much more. It involves us offering ourselves up to you. God, let us get our eyes off the things around us, off of self, off of the things we like and we want and we desire, and set them on you because you are the only source of true joy and true life. Lord Jesus, today we praise your name. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.